0: The water flows through to the transmitter valves. This is Toyota, the London station of the British Broadcasting Company, calling. Good evening. This is BBC Two. Radio Two, Radio One, go. You're listening to today on Radio Four with John Humphreys and Brian Redhead. The time is 28 minutes to eight. And now it's time for the shipping forecast and reports from coastal stations.
1: Haggers, do stop it. And that's what's called in the BBC Handbook a technical cocker. What we do in the next few years will determine the next few thousands.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of You're On The Air, the podcast that looks at the art and skill of the broadcaster. I'm John Briggs and you may know me best as the original voice of Siri in the UK or perhaps the BBC's Weakest Link quiz show. But I've spent 40 years on air as a TV and radio presenter and I started at a time when you needed a TV or a radio station to be a broadcaster. But these days, a smartphone means you can broadcast anywhere in the world. That doesn't mean, though, that everyone possesses the skills to be a professional broadcaster. So what are those skills? Well, to find out, this week's guest is an old Etonian who first sat behind the microphone at Seven Sound in Gloucester, his hometown, and then Southern Sound in Brighton. And in fact, he joined myself and Sarah Ward on the breakfast show of the newly formed Radio 5 when it launched back in August 1990 and went on to succeed Peter Bromley as BBC Radio's racing correspondent for the next 30 years. He is, of course, Cornelius Lysett Cornelius, thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, how are you doing? Why horse
0: racing, Cornelius? Was it always a passion from an early age?
1: Yeah, I I, I suppose so. I I loved it. I I don't recall going to the races for the first time. Um, It it happened when I was very young. My father, in particular, was very keen, come from a a horsey part of the country. I was born in Gloucester, but um, actually grew up in the Gloucestershire, Herefordshire countryside and very rural area. And um, to to my mind... uh, horse racing, it's the, it's the very sort of uh, illustration of uh, grassroots racing. It's um, uh, an important sport in, in rural areas. And although we weren't horsey at all, um, we were big into the racing, so Hereford races, Chepstow, Cheltenham, uh, the local point-to-point and things. And I had a sort of, uh, I, I wanted to do that. I probably wanted to be the next Peter Bromley or probably in those days. Peter O'Sullivan, I remember impersonating or trying to impersonate uh, Peter O'Sullivan to to family and friends and used to say, um, as they run on towards the final 200 yards and, and, uh, and this kind of thing. I tried that out on Sir Peter himself uh, in later life who who smiled benignly at me. Um, uh, but um, yeah, so it was always an ambition, But but I was actually a news reporter before uh, I got into the racing. You mentioned Seven Sound Radio in Gloucester. Um, I joined there and in, in, in fact, we're, we're sitting talking in February, uh, 2021. Uh, this July will be 40 years. It was the, the week that um, uh, the Prince of Wales and Diana Princess of Wales uh, were married, was, was my first week. Uh, so at that stage, news reporter, and then a chance to specialize in, in racing later and ended up at the BBC from 1990. I never
0: realised until I looked you up that actually your birthday is three days after mine. Ah. So we're very similar ages and actually very similar experiences. I think 1981 was the first time I really stepped into radio studio in in anger uh, and had always been fascinated by it. When did the sporting side become apparent that that was the area of broadcast you were going to go into? It it was always a
1: little bit of a, a, a wish. Uh, to, to do it. And then 7 Sounds technically covered not the whole of Gloucestershire, but I think the the, the franchise, the commercial radio franchise was for Gloucester and Cheltenham. Uh, and uh, whereas, you know, everybody had to do a bit of something. Somebody did football on a Saturday afternoon. Somebody went to King's Home in Gloucester to do rugby union. Uh, somebody did golf or tennis or, or whatever the sport was. And uh some i i suppose I, I don't really remember this happening as such but somebody must have said well they're racing at Cheltenham on saturday who's going to go and i wouldn't have been uh very short on um uh, very slow in putting my hand up on that particular point but that so that's probably that's probably in 1981 uh and i remember john frankham who was the champion jockey coming to open a betting shop in gloucester and i was absolutely gagging to go and do something with john franken this great hero and at the time uh, the the most revered jump jockey ever, really. But I remember being utterly tongue-tied and not having a clue what to really ask him uh, because I was uh, I was fairly starstruck as well. Uh, uh, another anecdote that I've been able to laugh with the man himself uh, subsequently, and, uh, and he finds it uh, very amusing. Talking of champion jockeys, that uh, a very, very big name jockey, jump jockey, late 60s and into the 70s was Terry Biddlecombe. Uh, and Terry Biddlecombe and I, and my family had the same GP. And so as a sort of six-year-old, already very enthusiastic about uh, racing, going to see Dr. Wilson, the GP in a village called Staunton, just outside Gloucester. And we went into the waiting room and Terry Biddlecombe, who was a very striking looking guy, very blonde hair, was sitting in the waiting room, and I'll tell you what the eczema that I had on my legs or behind my knees or whatever it was used to come back on a very regular basis, so that uh, we could g- go in the hope of uh, in the hope of bumping into Terry Biddlecombe again. And, and years later, he and his uh his then wife Henrietta Knight trained best mate, the winner of the Cheltenham Gold Cup three times, two thousand and two, three and four. And when one used to go on, when I used to go on media trips to their stables, Biddlecombe and I told him the story about sitting in the GP's waiting room with him. He used to look he had a he had quite a sort of Gloucestershire accent. He used to say, Here he comes my stalker he used to say, and we used to have tremendous laughs and it was a, a sad day when uh, when he died a year or two ago. Your recall of
0: these events and the names uh, and the dates and so on is is staggering. I mean, is that something that you've always possessed? Because I know as I
1: get older, I'm going to have a problem remembering what year I did anything. Um, yeah, I, I'll tell you, Racing has the form book and the form books. Absolutely, I have a, a, a retiring trainer of um, probably 10 years ago now said to me, would you like all my form books Um, because otherwise I think I'm going to throw them away. And I remember these boxes, of these things, I've got them. I've got two of them in front of me now talking to you and they are for a jump racing season. They must be five inches thick. Um, And boxes of them appeared. And I remember thinking at the time, gosh, uh, the trainer was called David Gandolfo. I remember thinking, gosh, Gandhi, I'm doing you a massive favor here, taking these, these form books from you, but but in fact they're amazingly useful because a um, you know you think I definitely. Did this on such and such a day, or I, I remember this was mid seventies. This was Worcester races. I can remember that bit, and then actually the form book are so good and so easy to easy to use that you can you can fairly easily find your date. So the, the the form book is exceptionally useful, and I find myself digging them out on a very regular basis, and then. You know, it's like the, the modern-day um, Google. You, you think, I'll, I'll, I'll look at the, the form book for the 1975-76 season for two seconds to find out, blah-de-blah. And then an hour and a half later, and you're thinking, gosh, I, I ought to probably go and have some lunch. Um, so, um, yeah, th- that, that's a help. I, I, I think we're all the same, aren't we? I can remember uh, the, the, the morning of chatting to you, I saw uh, an obit in the a death notice in the Daily Telegraph of a racehorse trainer from the 70s. Uh, and I could remember Chackle chap called Bill Swainson and, and I could remember his horses Life and K and True Lad quite easily. But if you ask me what won the 245 at Subble last Wednesday, I might have to uh, to work a little bit harder. I think it's part of the problem, sorry, this is not what we're here to talk about. Part of the problem is a bit like taking on spectacles, isn't it? That your eyes can probably cope. But you take on spectacles, and they rely on your specs. We we rely on all our devices to provide that information. So, it's why why the, our memories aren't quite so good, why our handwriting isn't so good, and why our um, mental arithmetics not so good because of calculators.
0: I want to talk about the world of being an expert in a subject in, in a moment. But let's just take the clock back to you joining Sarah and I on Morning Edition mm. on Radio 5. I think we brought you in as a tipster, didn't we? Didn't we bring you in as, as the idea that you were going to give regular daily tips? Is that how it happened?
1: Well, it, 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 the tips were going to be part of it. But what, what actually happened was that uh, it was pretty useful for the BBC to have uh, a vehicle which it could sell to racing, could say to racing, look, we're, we're, we're committed to this. Um, so um, what, what, what can happen here? Uh, is we'll do a a couple of spots on the radio in the morning, uh, and we've got this new radio station, Radio 5, starting. uh, And your sponsors are probably going to get a mention in this, and that that could all work out quite well. So there were a couple of tips, but it was a a preview of the day. And um, Mike Lewis, who was the head of sport at the BBC, uh, wanted to resurrect what had been Wogan's winner Mm. on the Terry Wogan Show on Radio 2. Uh, for, for many years quite successfully and you know I was quite fortunate that um, somebody said to me oh there's this guy called Cornelius Lycett. Uh and as I've joked many times sounds like he should be running in the 230 but actually he can he can um, probably um, help to preview the 230 and this could be quite good and could convince uh, the people that run racing that uh, the BBC likes racing, and um, you know it's, it's it's a good selling point, so we won't have to pay a huge amount for the rights. And there I was uh, on the I you you would have been uh, John Briggs and Sarah Ward would have been there on. Was there a breakfast show on the first day, or did it start no. actually in the middle of the day on it, the first day? It started in the middle of the day. You're absolutely yeah. right. We were the so we must day. have been the Tuesday, the day after the bank holiday. Yeah, and uh, we were a, a merry band of um, of of people, and it meant that when I left the BBC on the thirtieth of April, twenty twenty, I was practically the only person that had been uh, uh, on. Radio Five and Radio Five Live on a regular basis uh, for the for the previous nearly thirty years. It's an
0: extraordinary record, uh, uh, and and to survive even the changeover from Radio Five to Radio Five Live, where there was a a huge cull. It was five five was a was almost a stopgap, wasn't it, to keep the frequency open yeah. until they could do what they actually wanted to do, which was start Five Live. Uh, so it was always a, as with many things with the BBC, something of a curate's egg. Uh, is it something you look back on fondly? Is it something that you go, wow, that was that was the liftoff point, or, or it, do you look at it much more from the point of view of when you took over as the the, co- the the racing correspondent?
1: No, 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 definitely that was as much as there was ever a liftoff point. That was the the liftoff point. I'd always loved breakfast shows it, it, it's great going to the races in the afternoon and reporting on uh, the five live sport program from seven until eight in the evening but especially in the summer there is nothing like a breakfast show because um uh, you know you're up and it's light and uh, everyone else is asleep and you can get to work easily and everybody's just waking up and then there's that real feeling and and i did two spots i think in the early days on Radio Five, which might have been at half seven and half, half past seven and half past eight, you know, a real sense that on the odd occasion you were telling people things as as, as uh, the presenters would have realised would have were telling things that they didn't know. So I've always loved the breakfast show, and th- at nine o'clock when you've been around a few hours, you feel you've done. Uh, a day's work or at least half a day's work to be able to relax and other people are coming into the office i've always found that whether it was at radio five whether it was at seven sound i did a, a bit of a breakfast show uh there, a news presentation there and, and southern sound that uh, you mentioned which was a commercial station in brighton i i actually did the travel news on the breakfast that so that was my first my, my first sort of full-time job was doing the travel news on uh, Southern Sound. I did Seven Sound sort of still at school and bit of news presentation, but all a bit, um, no no sort of, in uh, no sort of formal arrangement. Then Southern Sound, proper job in Brighton, and actually was there for the launch of that station in, in 1983. And um, just didn't enjoy living in that part of the world. It was uh, Brighton and Hove and studios in Port Slade and great people and quite a lot of fun. And, uh, but I was too young and too far away from home, didn't really know enough people. So I went back to Seven Sand and then had four very happy years there. But but the the start of the question is, I love the whole thought of being on a breakfast show. And I went to Five Live in what must've been 2015, 14 or 15, when, um, when the radio station was, uh, when Five Live was celebrating its 20th anniversary. And I was on the breakfast show with Nicky Campbell and whoever was presenting with him that day. And I remember my heart really beating. There's nothing like a bit of breakfast.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And breakfast shows are great. I think the one thing about breakfast shows is the is the hours they keep. I don't know anybody who's given up doing a breakfast show because they didn't want to do the show anymore. It was simply because physically, constantly getting up at 4.30 or even earlier in the morning to do that is is a real
1: killer. And you've made, and your life is so structured. I'm a, I'm a big Radio Four listener, uh, and in those days it was the the UK theme. It was called, wasn't it? The was it called the UK theme uh, yes. that they played at the start of the day? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, and. I always knew that if, if if I was not out of the bathroom by the time we got to the stage of the Cameron Highlanders or whichever part of the UK theme it was, then then I was late. So you could structure your morning uh, as well. And the, the uh, and the people used to say it. This was this was almost the best part of all. I remember a very distinguished racehorse trainer in Newmarket, Sir Mark Prescott, who is now the senior racehorse trainer around. I remember him saying to, to me uh, that Five Live uh, or Radio Five as it then was. Uh, uh, the, the timings work so well, he, he said, if I'm still in the bath when you start, I know I'm late. <laughs> and I always thought that was that, that was a, a sort of, in some respect, not not a particularly lovely image to come up, but in, in, on the other hand, actually rather nice that, that people rely on you, uh, that, that, that you are part of their getting up in the morning. I, I love all that bit, but I remember Rob Bonnet, who presents sport on the Today programme now, uh, said to me, and I think he probably does one or two days a week, he said to me it'll take your body a year. So I gave up in two thousand and one, uh, doing slots on the on the breakfast show on what was then Five Live. And he said it'll take you a year to recover. And I thought, Oh, what a load of old confidence. But actually he was absolutely right, it does just take quite a long time. To, to, to get your your body back into uh, back into sync again oh absolutely
0: uh, and and i then subsequently in the latter part of my life i've become a night owl i can't do early mornings anymore i did five years of them and they they really are uh you know a, a killer in many ways despite the fact as you say it's a brilliant time of day to broadcast why
1: radio rather than television i just always loved radio i love the sound of my own voice probably um but um uh, for, uh, I remember from a very young age being interested in the news. My, my mother actually worked at ITN um, uh, in the, at the time it started, in the mid-1950s. So, I, I wouldn't say she had a news sense, but she was quite excited to, to, to you know, every time, I, you know, it's almost the sort of word used by my parents all the time, is there a news on soon? Uh, probably referring to television rather than radio. But you know, I, I always liked the news and I liked the thought of the performance involved with reading the news and I, I've got a clear image of myself with the we we, we were a family which um, took the Daily Telegraph and I've got a clear memory of myself spreading out the Daily Telegraph on a sort of um, big chest freezer that we had in the kitchen and uh, and reading the news as though I was in, in, in a sort of wreathian dinner jacket bbc radio 4 the news at midnight this is cornelius lytton uh and i think uh, that was just my my you know what what i wanted to do at uh, at that stage T- television never really never really crossed my mind I, I went to two boarding schools where we wouldn't have watched television all that often but we were allowed a radio i remember you know the cheltenham festival in those days three days in march i used to i think there were two half days so that was easy but i probably went ill on the wednesday so tuesday and thursday i i i could there were half day study days so i could listen and on a wednesday i probably had to go ill to listen to peter bromley gloria hunneford i think as well Describing the the action uh, from Cheltenham on the radio, so uh, I, I don't think that television ever really crossed my mind. And the other thing about radio, and I, I hope we can talk about this, and I use this expression quite a lot when I left the BBC, uh, I love the intimacy of radio. The the fact is. That, that radio is with somebody in their kitchen, in their car, in their garden, in their workplace, in the bathroom, in the bedroom, wh- wherever it happens to be. And the intimacy is you and the person who switched the radio on, whereas television doesn't have that, that same kind of uh, intimacy. Um, and as a result, I, I think t- in, inevitably there are um presenters who have to appear on both radio and tv uh, they're quite different skills though in uh, in my opinion uh, and I, I i think some people are very good at radio not particularly good at television and and indeed vice versa and normally if you're not all that good at television uh, at radio it could be cuz i don't think you really get really understand the intimacy of um the presenter with the person who switched the radio
0: on. I think that's a very interesting point. It's a point I've made, you know, over many, many years. Uh, and the difference, as you say, is that if you talk about a radio listener, that their, their ear is right in front of your mouth. And actually, it's quite difficult for a producer or anybody else to get in there. Whereas with television, of course, the camera has to be six foot away from you to be able to see you at least. So you are always kind of projecting yourself. At the camera, which you cannot do on radio. And if you do, you sound like an idiot. Um, <laughs> and, and I think there are, you're absolutely right, very different skills to, to both of them. Uh, and television, because I've, I've been lucky to do both. But television, I, I always say, you know, you, you, you need 15 people to do anything. And any one of those 15 people can actually muck it up for you. And particularly if you annoy the cameraman, they can make you look very stupid. <laughs> and you don't have to do anything about that whatsoever. I think it was I think it was David Niven, and it's probably an apocryphal story, but even when he was making movies, the thing he used to say when he came onto the set, he used to go up to the camera and say, good morning, because those... Are the eyes of the audience? That is where your audience is, uh, and therefore a relationship with the camera is something you have to have, which is actually quite a difficult thing to create.
1: But you sound you sound as passionate about radio as I've always been. Oh, I'm com- completely passionate. When when you talk about the the listener being right near your your mouth, well, you know, I remember the first time I really listened to the radio it was under my pillow. So you know, you know, of course, there's that intimacy. And if you look at the If you look at the great radio presenters, um, and um, you know of which there are happily many, many, you know, I I, I almost feel that they, and I'm, I'm, I'm miming this as I'm talking to you, that they fold their arms and they sit forward into the microphone and they just chat to you, and I, I love that, and I'll tell you the other, the thing that I find very, very surprising, is how many people sounding quite pompous now probably, but how many how many people who should know better aren't particularly good at it? And I'll tell you the, <laughs> the thing that, 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 this is in terms of radio broadcasting. You know, the the, the fact of the matter is that the, the, the person who's turned the radio on, and notice I, I haven't used the expression, the listener, the person who's turned the radio on, isn't somebody eavesdropping on a conversation between you and me, between the presenter and the contributor. It's somebody who should be part of that conversation. So I, I heard a program on Radio 4 uh, presented by one of the most distinguished people to present radio um, uh, on, on Radio 4 yesterday, and uh, that person said, tell the listeners. Oof. And I thought, hold on a second, no, no wonder I don't particularly enjoy this program because you're, you're, you're treating me as some sort of distant cousin, some sort of... Possibly slightly second-class citizen who isn't in the same same um, intelligence bracket as you. Tell the listeners. Or when you hear a, an interviewer say, um, Prime Minister, will you tell our listeners? Tell us. That's what you're saying is tell us. What, 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 what's going on. I do find that very, very frustrating. And as a result, I shout at the radio quite a lot.
0: I heard Naga Munchetti say it the other day. And, and she said, so, and it's the thing I great every time. And it's not just radio. It's when you even when you're standing on a stage doing a presentation, there's only one person listening. At one time, it may be that we happen to all be in the same room. It may be that there are lots of people listening to you at the same time, but only one person can listen to you at once. And when a radio presenter turns around and says, you all know this. And it's like, no, I'm not an amorphous mass. I'm an individual. I want to be treated like an individual.
1: So the word Hmm. that you have to use every time is you. I'm not seeking to be controversial, but you're actually giving me a chance to vent my prejudices uh, on this occasion while we're at it. Uh, and, and another thing that that smashes the intimacy of radio is when the presenter says, um, w- "Time now for." It, it could it could have been the presenters on Radio Five in 1990. I hope I didn't do this. Time, it's it's 7:32. Time now for our racing slot with Cornelius Lysit. Thank you, John. Thank you, Sarah. That just smashes the intimacy. It's all part of one thing. Uh, and uh, and the other thing is this absolutely constant obsession by some people on radio of using the, the, the presenters' first names all the time. Uh, the most classic example used to come, but a very good friend of mine, um, first bit of name dropping of the day, but a very good friend of mine who was a presenter on uh, Five Live, uh, who's now uh, involved with ITV and other and top level television uh, sports, presentation Mark Pugach he, he is Mark Pugach but his uh, within the office he was always Pugas. Uh and certain um, pundits and things call him Pugas. Uh, and that uh, they would say, well, Pugas coming up in 10 minutes, Pugas. We've got Pugas. Uh, um, discussion about, uh, Leicester's victory over Liverpool and Everton's defeat of, uh, Manchester United Pugas. And Pugas, they were Pugas. I can't tell you Pugas what good games they were, Pugas. And you just think, well, hold on. It's not, it's that, that any, any semblance of intimacy has gone. Uh, Pugas is just a nickname used in the office, so it's a very in thing anyway. And ultimately, I used to, st- uh, if I ever followed these particular incidents, I used to do it deliberately. And so I used to finish my piece saying, So, uh, XYZ, the two to one favorite, won the big race at Doncaster. Back to you, Pugas. And uh, it, it was obviously an in-joke between the two of us. And then I used to get a text message about two minutes later saying, don't be so childish, which, of course, <laughs> it was entirely childish. And you shouldn't use – no no presenter should use the airwaves for their own little games. But I was, I was just making the point. So you don't need to hear – First names all the time, and I, I am personally, and it's obviously a style thing at the BBC. I am amazed that on the six o'clock news or t- television news or whatever, uh, that you know the the presenter says live to um, reporter X at, uh, at in Belfast, and the presenter, the news presenter, is called Lydia or whatever, and the and the reporter in Belfast starts by saying Lydia the news from here is this it's not he's not he or she is not really talking to Lydia he or she is talking to the to, to the person who's turned on the television uh, the, the other bugbear that I have which was when I was taught by a
0: news editor at a very very young age is the back announcement uh, that I that I hate uh, uh, and you get people presenters turning around and saying Cornelius Lycett there in the back of my head are the words of my news editor who, do, who used to turn around and say well where the f else would he be and so I've always I've always done that. I've always refrained from saying, you know, so and so there. Where the F else would he be?
1: Well yes, that's the yeah, that would be uh, that would be one that uh, wouldn't be a great favourite of mine. We we could actually sit here all day and become a couple of grumpy old so and so's. <laughs> um, but, but 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 I I'm not um I, I'm I I I love it. It's not because I'm trying to be difficult and people say to me, Oh, you just grumble about the BBC because uh, you you've left the BBC and that's not not true at all. But I just love standards to be high and uh, now now this is old fart uh, alert you know the fact is if the BBC isn't doing things properly then you can't really expect anyone else to you
0: mentioned uh the fact that your name was perhaps a a little bit of an entry because it's unusual uh mm. and, and it is, is that i don't know any other cornelius's I- I- ever shame I'm, on you not come across anyone anywhere else is called cornelius has it been a, a a passport to to being noticed has it been useful to you
1: um well yes and, and i've never seen it as as a disadvantage i don't think that it's ever you know i particularly dislike being called corny so people have been able to have a to to irritate me when when they want to very very easily so i don't but apart from that the 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 fact is that uh if i'd been for nearly 30 years on the on the radio um being called you know David Young, or nothing r- r- wrong with being called David Young, or or being called something uh, less distinctive. Then um, that 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 wouldn't have been such a plus. So no, it's been a plus. Uh, it's been been a definite plus. I think going through school, it was a bit more tricky. I was I was telling somebody on a on a different podcast recently that I used to really enjoy following a racehorse trainer in the 1970s. Uh, whose name appeared in the race card as B.R. Uh B.R. Cambidge, comma, Schiffnell. He trained at Schiffnell in Staffordshire. And the B stood for Burn Up. And part of the reason uh, that I I liked Burn Up Roy Cambidge was because that was another really unusual name, but at least he could be Bernie and Corny was never acceptable. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Cornelius has become, uh, it's, it's become part of part of me, part of my makeup uh, I think I probably didn't on occasions like my parents having called me that years ago, but but ultimately it was a big plus. It's part of your
0: brand as well, isn't it? Because I think
1: your podcast is called Cornelius Cast. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and uh, I call myself everything is Cornelius Racing now. So um, uh, poor the poor old license they they, they don't get that uh, uh, they don't get quite the looking. Perhaps they deserve license is actually an anagram of ghastly. So um, uh, Cornelius license is really quite a name. <laughs> Tell
0: me about your heroes. I mean, you've obviously you've mentioned Peter O'Sullivan and obviously you followed in the footsteps and huge shoes to fill in Peter Bromley. Were they your heroes or were there other people who inspired you?
1: Well, they, they were from a, a racing point of view. Um, uh, uh, you know, they had two... The, the, what they demonstrated, Peter O'Sullivan and Peter Bromley, Peter O'Sullivan on BBC television, Peter Bromley on BBC radio, was that although obviously you needed to be able to identify the horses, you also needed to perform. And uh, uh, Peter Bromley's uh, successor as uh, racing commentator on BBC Radio, John Hunt, is another very good example of somebody who he, ABCDEFG you can do all the horses, but also it's a performance to, to, to really bring it to life. So uh, they'd have certainly been heroes, broadcasting heroes. Uh, as I said, my mother was uh, worked at ITN in the 1950s, and she was, you know, knew knew a lot of the people who were part of that. And I was in a school play, and uh, it was written into this play. The news is read by Reggie bosencat So I said to my mother, "Do, do you think, um, you know, do, do you think, what do you think?" Because she'd known him a bit, and uh, she said, oh, "I." contact him you can't, can't really go wrong And anyway i can't remember how i contacted him possibly through her or possibly mentioning her in the letter to reggie Bosenkett, who was this huge name reading the news at 10 with alistair burnett and sandy gall alistair stewart i think came later on anna ford part of it but but reggie bosonkett and alistair burnett and sandy gall two out of those three were on it seemed to me most nights uh and um i contacted him and went to see him he lived in the King's Road in London, right at the, where the King, King's Road bends round about a mile uh, along the along the route, and he lived in a flat there. And uh, I went with a tape recorder on a very cold Saturday morning, uh, and I remember there was there was ice on the on the pavement. So walking down the King's Road from Sloane Square Underground Station was was uh, a little bit was a little bit. Tricky, there was that much ice on the plate. They hadn't been gritted. Anyway, uh, so I would have been about 15 or 16 and went in with my tape recorder and he read this news bulletin for whatever the, the, the play was. Anyway, Reggie Bozenkett, as well as being a, a wonderful newsreader, great voice, great personality. Uh, also, he loved a drink. So me as a 15 or 16 year old, he said probably at 11 o'clock in the morning, would you like a gin and tonic? Well, I'd never had a gin and tonic before in my life. I shouldn't think. Uh, anyway, I didn't have one. I, I would have had several, and that ice on the pavement as I walked back down the King's Road was was very, very treacherous. <laughs> um, and I was sliding all over the place. Actually, I've not drink drunk gin from that day to this. It just uh, it just doesn't agree with me. I think Reggie did me a big uh, a big uh, service there, but he was absolutely. Uh, one of my heroes with Alistair Burnett. And Alistair Burnett, who'd reached great heights in journalism, both in television. uh, And if you ever see any old uh, general election programs uh, from the 60s and 70s, he's very often presenting the coverage. Uh, And he'd been in Fleet Street as well, Alistair Burnett. And he loved racing. Uh, I used to see him around the races a bit. And I remember, do you know that situation when... um, when you're a group of you are in a conversation, somebody says something quite emphatic or maybe quite controversial, and it just feels uh, as though it needs a, a bit of punctuation in the conversation. And I always use the way that uh, Alistair Burner ended News at 10. And I'm, again, I'm miming this talking to you. I picked up my pad. So he read his last story. He'd done his and finally on the News at 10, finished it, and then he used to say, I pick up his papers and i picked up my pad in front of me now and he used to pat them on the desk and say and that's the news tonight good night (laughs) and so if i was ever in a conversation with a group of friends and still do it now actually and somebody says and it's an absolute disgrace and i would love to punctuate the conversation by saying as everybody just pauses and that's the news tonight good night (laughs) alice burnett great man
0: Tell me a bit about the, the the preparation that you need to do, and, and and I suppose this is the point to make the distinction as well. That you, you are the racing, or were the racing correspondent. You were not the senior racing commentator. No Comment, commentary. I mean, I've done a lot of jobs in radio. Sports commentary is one I know I simply cannot do. I do not have the speed of thought, the speed of 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 speech that is required to go with it. And I I take my hat off to anyone, no matter what sport they're doing. Was commentary something you thought of doing, or was it never part of your ball game?
1: I, I think I probably would have liked to have uh, done commentary. Um, but um, no actually, I found the journalism even even more um, enticing, really. but it would have been lovely to have been as as um, somebody said to me the other day, Ed Chamberlain, who presents racing on ITV, said to me, "A great occasion needs a great commentary." So, when Red Rum won the Grand National for the third time in 1977, when Desert Orchid won the Cheltenham Gold Cup finally in 1989, when Frankel completed his 14 wins from 14 starts at at Ascot, it's fine uh, and it's tremendous, obviously, seeing the spectacle, but you need that soundtrack to go with it. and. you know, here comes Red Rum, Uh, I can't remember it was O'Sullivan or Bromley, said, here comes the greatest horse ever, and you really need to be able to do that, and I couldn't couldn't have done that, but I was very happy to be on the the six o'clock news on Radio 4 or the uh, sports report on five live describing what had happened and hopefully some reasonably well considered words around um, interviews with with those involved but i did do I, uh, uh, the the grand national at Aintree, the entry race course is so enormous uh, it stretches away from the grandstand in a sort of great triangle down as you look out from the stands on the right hand side it, it heads straight down towards the district of fazally And then at the end, you get to what they call the canal turn and you turn very sharp left and you come back the other way. And then you come up the bottom part of the, the triangle in front of the enclosure. So you need John Hunt, the, the commentator, Peter Bromley in the past. They, you, you, you couldn't, you just can't see the, the horses right the way over there. So you have four commentators on radio and I had. I think it was ninety-eight, ninety-nine, two thousand, about three or four times. Two thousand and one, I did as well, uh, and I did the section of the Grand National from Valentine's to the Melling Road. So just you know, just hearing words like Valentine's, the Canal Turn, the Melling Road, Beecher's brought the chair, you know, th- that is what the Grand National is all about and the, the heritage around those obstacles and all the the equine and human athletes who've gone over them over the years is just, you know, it, it, it just gets me excited. And I did that stretch, I think the first year I did it was probably 98 when the Earth Summit won the Grand National, but there were quite a lot of familiar names in the race. And in fact, Doing the Grand National isn't hard because you can't recognize the horses. It's hard because you've just got to get the words out quickly. And I I remember really, really being, you know, absolutely terrified about it. Uh, and the following year it made me laugh because uh, i probably embellished the story a little bit and t- told uh, told everybody uh ab- about how terrified i'd been the following year obviously by coincidence the race course put a, a, a block of porta at the bottom of the steps that went up to my commentary position which always made me smile
0: so tell me what happens on a, on on a, on a race day how how do you prepare we've we've all seen the the football commentators you, you know uh who have these incredibly detailed pages of a4 with all of the mm. stats that people can can come up with in fact i think some of them now auction them off as uh, as charity prizes they are they are so prized by other people what do you do how does a day progress what
1: happens one of the five lives uh, football commentators ian dennis is a, a very good friend of mine and he you're absolutely right he will do stats for all 22 players on a on a football pitch um, which is something that I wouldn't do. Uh, I, I'm, I I like to think I'm so absorbed in it. And the, the, on the day that we're chatting now, I, I wouldn't not watch, there's a race meeting at, at Kelso this afternoon. I wouldn't not watch Kelso if I possibly can. So I try and absorb myself in it completely. Uh, and then it's more a case from from my point of view of identifying the 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 stories, uh, if you like. So I, I'm not going to sit there and uh, and learn the colours of all the horses in the race because uh, that that that's for others to do. But what I really want to be across is uh, the the potential stories. And then what I really enjoyed uh, at Five Live, uh, which is completely different to any other form of media, probably, is that Five Live is a news and sports network. So you could be uh, having um, uh, a, a block of uh, reporting about COVID-19 or about a war in wherever and football and rubber union and racing. And racing is not racing doesn't have the stature in society that it had say 50 years ago and certainly, um, you know, longer ago than that. Winston Churchill, for example, was a, a great racehorse owner and breeder where well, you couldn't imagine a politician of the modern era doing anything, uh, like, like that. So racing needs to be not not just about horse a competing against horse b the weights they're carrying the distance they're racing over the going on which they're competing it needs to be the story of the horse and let me but let me pull up one out of the air paisley park is a horse who was the champion staying lincoln hurdle the champion long distance hurdle of two or three years ago and is favorite i think to uh win that again in 2021 when the race is uh, staged at the Cheltenham festival paisley park is named uh after the recording studio of prince because his owner owner andrew gemmel absolutely loves prince so horse names are just always looking out for that andrew gemmel is Uh, 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 a real character. Not only does he love Prince, but he's actually been blind since birth and he is uh, a sports nut whether it's racing or tennis or cricket, who has absolutely refused to allow his blindness to to get in the way of that. Another good aspect of Paisley Park, trained by Emma Lavelle. Emma Lavelle is a racehorse trainer near Marlborough in Wiltshire. Uh, And the fact is that racing was for centuries dominated by men. And although it is not dominated by men anymore, female participants uh, are really, when they do well, do really grab even greater headlines. Uh, so with, so Paisley Park might be competing at, at Cheltenham or Ascot, uh, Aintree, uh, I remember him, uh, running, or well, Haydock, I remember him certainly running there. Uh, and, you know, it's not about so much about is Paisley Park going to win the race? It's about a horse with a great name, an interesting owner, uh, an engaging uh, trainer as well. And then what I tried to do, and this is where you need to be really in with the production team, uh, uh, is to say, well, look, I think if I plonked Emma Lavelle or Andrew Gemmell um, in front of your um, broadcast position with some headphones on to talk down the line as they say, to Mark Chapman, the presenter, or Mark Pugach in the past, the presenter of Five Live Sport, then that can really work. So so as well as knowing that there are gonna be reports to be done, there is talking to be done, there is uh, stories to react to, it's also important to just set stuff up to really try and sell the event, to sell the thing to, to Five Live, and then on to the, the people who've turned the radio on. It requires that
0: level of understanding of something very very specific as well
1: do you think you could apply yourself to any sport (laughs) no 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 i just i'm i i am absorbed in and obsessed by horse racing um people say to me do you prefer jump racing to flat racing i always say i love flat racing and i adore jump racing uh, so, um, jump racing is around is the sport around which I grew up. But you know, if well, there there are two answers actually to your question. One is no, I probably couldn't. But the second thing is, when people used to say to me, "I don't know anything," these producers usually at the BBC, "I don't know anything about racing." You'll have to help me. I don't know anything about racing. I used to say, well, I don't know anything about rugby league, but I absolutely promise you that if you put somebody in front of me and told me who they were, then I could do an interview with them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, as, as I say to, to um, young, young people say to me now, leaving school or leaving a uh, college or university saying, what would be your best advice? And I always say the same thing, which has got nothing specifically to do with racing, but but it's something I had to learn to do while broadcasting about racing, was that you want to stand up for yourself. You want to stand up for your sport so that you're not sort of trodden all over all the time. Uh, But uh, you don't want to bang the drum so hard that you get put down as a member of the awkward squad. And it's a very fine line to walk that tightrope between standing up for your sport and not doing it so much so uh, that uh, you get put down as a member of the awkward squad. And I I think I'd be the first to admit that uh, I uh, certainly initially at the BBC wasn't that good at that because I think I probably had a higher opinion of horse racing than it probably deserved. But I gradually uh, mellowed into learning exactly what that was all about.
0: I need to ask you about the the, the best and the worst moments the, the, mo- the let's start with the worst moment the moment that you remember from your broadcasting career which can still make the hairs on the back of your neck stick up or possibly let make you, make you break out in a, in a slightly cold sweat, remembering what happened
1: I think it's probably to do with horses' names funnily enough, and that's I thought it was just me but Particularly in flat racing, there are a lot of horses um, which are owned by racehorse owners who come from the Middle East and use words, uh, translate words from Arabic into English that just um, are are quite hard to pronounce and remember. Um, And uh, then um, also more recently, there've been a lot of French um imports into the UK, particularly into jump racing, and the same really applies to them. So I think it's that, I, I don't know how often I've necessarily done it, but it's just getting a horse's name just wrong. Um, and I thought it was just me paranoid about this. And I, I had a conversation with a young reporter on the Racing Post called Tom Kerr, who had a very young age has become the editor of the Racing Post. <laughs> I said to him, we were having this exact same conversation. And I said, just those names when, are they called Marood or Marook or Marak or Marek? And, you, you know, you, you just get Paranoid that you've got it wrong, and he said, "I'm exactly the same," which was a a massive relief. And you know, there are French names at the moment uh, running around. Uh, You know, I do. Yeah, I wrote actually something recently for the Racing Post that I yearn for all horses to be called names like Desert Orchid and Red Rum and Best Mate uh, and Denman um, because um, you know they're, they're proper names that people can latch onto. In fact, recently in a race on the flat at Chelmsford, there was a winner called. Fred, oh, I thought good for Fred. If I'd, I only looked at the results. I'd have, I'd have backed it uh, ahead of the race if um, if I'd seen Fred was in action.
0: What about the moment that makes you uh, look back with pride and go, "Yeah, I nailed that." That's my, that's the bit that I'm proudest
1: of. Yeah, well, I don't want to sound arrogant, but 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 you, you know, there are a few, there are a few like that because there there've been a few dramas. You now, there, there's been no bigger drama, I would suggest. Um, in, in within the UK, that any sports correspondent has uh, in which any sports correspondent has been involved, than the 1997 Grand National at Aintree, um, and the quiz question about um, about that year is that because of a of a bomb threat from the IRA. The race was uh, postponed from the traditional Saturday afternoon. The entire place was evacuated. You weren't allowed to get in your car and leave. You had to get out and get out now. And the race was eventually uh, staged on the Monday afternoon at five o'clock. It was general election week of 1997 because John Major, as the soon to depart prime minister, um, brought his campaigning to Aintree that Monday afternoon, and presented the the trophies to the the team around the winner, was a horse called Lord Guilin. But that event, and that being on top of that event, from the moment it became apparent that something was wrong, to when uh, we remained on air as we were pushed out—well, not literally pushed out, but the entire place was evacuated. We uh the, the broadcast team got broken up, had to find itself again. We were broadcasting from the actual Melling Road, which is um uh the, the bit that doesn't go across the race course, but the, the bit adjacent to the to the track. Uh and then we were dispersed into Liverpool City Center that night. And that 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 to me is the biggest thing that I've ever been involved. It was an international event. And I remember John Inverdale, who was um, present, who presented on the Monday. It was Ian Payne, our presenter on the on the Saturday. But on the Monday, it was John Inverdale, and I remember him lamenting to me as we waited to go on air. Said, "Do you you think this is just going to become the norm that major sporting events are going to be disrupted by terror threats?" Well touching everything. That's not necessarily been the case, but that was that was a huge thing. And on the Saturday night, everyone pouring out of the race course into the city. And obviously most people, a large number of people had come to Merseyside for the Grand National, but they hadn't planned to stay that night. So p- p- people were um, I think in the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, the, the the management was selling mattresses to put on the ballroom <laughs> and sleep. Uh, a lot of people didn't really go to bed at all. Uh, uh, we cars, I think, could finally be collected on the Monday morning. Uh, it it was a massive, it was a huge, huge thing, and I relived it for uh, an anniversary program on which, uh, if I were sounding very. Corporate from my former employers is probably available on BBC Sounds, uh, which uh, must have been in 2017. 20 years later, reliving everything and how uh, the whole event affected a racing and b Merseyside. And that, although I say it myself, the the production team who put that together did a fabulous job uh, with it. And it was also the time. Final final thought: It was where the Grand National and the city of Liverpool. Fell back in love because I, I think Liverpool, which is traditionally a football city with Everton and Liverpool, had just sort of seen the Grand National as something that did take place, and a few people went. Uh, but not that many. But uh, it, the the event and the people got back together as a result of uh, those events in 1997 and demonstrate that um, uh, from, from from all bad things, and clearly it was a bad thing that Saturday, some, some sort of good can, can appear. Two final questions
0: before we go. The first being, I know that when you were on Morning Edition, we as yes, the, the the team whatever so every so often particularly when it came to the big races like the grand national badger you for a tip or two you're not a gambling man are you no but of course lots of people would assume because of the inside knowledge in inverted commas <laughs> that you might have this is somewhere where you could make some money surely
1: oh i can absolutely assure you uh, it's not inside information um flies around the place and whether One's looking ahead towards racing at Kelso or Cheltenham uh, or York uh, or Bath. No, you know, somebody knows something, but it, the, the fact is that too many people know too much, and it's all different. So, <laughs> I, I, I just have I, I've never re- I've never been very good at losing money. I am very, very happy. I have an app on my telephone in which uh, I have normally about forty pounds, and I'm very happy to sit and watch racing. And either have no bet at all or have a couple of quid, literally two pounds on something that I think, gosh, look, that's 16 to one. That ran quite well the other day at Brighton. Uh, and to have a couple of, but that's, that's the absolute maximum interest. I'm trying to think of some incredibly amusing story about a, uh, a bet, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one, that relates to the Grand National actually, and I remember telling this story, which um, either Radio 5 or 5 Live, whichever it was at the time, uh, really enjoyed and it became the sort of trail for the Grand, the trailer for the Grand National uh, and our coverage that year, was that the biggest betting success I have probably ever had was in the 1978 Grand National, when my family had a family friend called Lucius, and my sister had a cat called Sebastian and Lucius beat Sebastian in a driving finish to that year's Grand National and as a family I think we were able to have steak and chips to celebrate that night that was the biggest success (laughs) I've ever had in the race and I think it's a great example of what the Grand National is all about, you know. The fact is, I backed Lucius and or we backed Lucius and Sebastian that year. I know people who backed. What um, one year we had a production meeting at uh, at Aintree. There was a horse running called Uncle Ernie, and the producer Jill Pulsford said, I I've got an Uncle Ernie. I'm backing that." And someone else said, "Oh look, there's a runner in the, the Grand National called Auntie Dot. I've got an Auntie Dot. I'm going to back that." Uh, and I just love it that people do that kind of thing. I think horses' names are really important. I've already mentioned my paranoia about getting them wrong and whether they have uh, derivations uh, in uh, the Arabic language or in the French uh, language. But as we head, as we are, as we chat here heading towards the Cheltenham Festival of uh, 2021, there are horses running there with names like Honeysuckle and Monkfish. And to my mind, uh, I've got nothing against the others, but I hope they do really well.
0: I have to close with talking about the uh, the end of your time with, with BBC Radio. Um, I know it's not something you wanted to happen. Uh, it was part of the BBC's desire to move on those people it regarded as perhaps older uh, and not necessarily attracting the younger audience that they constantly pursue and i know you and i both have views on on that and and the right editorial policy you must miss it
1: yeah do you know what i miss uh as it happens (laughs) i my last day was the 30th of april and um life generally all sport and horse racing uh, amongst all sports has been severely disrupted so in uh, uh, in the in the months immediately after leaving I, I i just no no one went racing and i i or well, very few people went racing and i i was one of those so do i miss the racing well the answer is i haven't had the chance to miss the racing but i'll tell you what i really miss uh is the deadlines i absolutely love uh, the deadline. Somebody asked me to write something uh, this week ahead of the Cheltenham Festival 2021. And he said, uh, I'm afraid the deadline's a bit tight. This was a Thursday morning. And I said, what, you need it by lunchtime. Uh, am I going to have to put off the, the lunchtime edition of The Archers so um, that I g- get this written in time? and uh, he said no no it needs to be done by monday 500 words and I thought, <laughs> um you know i don't want to sound arrogant in any way but but you know uh, um 500 words in three days time is actually much harder than 500 words by by lunchtime uh there's nothing like a deadline so i really missed the the deadline and we were talking about what i did on um on uh, on race days when i was working for five live uh, I always had my first deadline was always the ten thirty desk on Radio Five Live, and it became a little bit of a little bit of a joke uh, with the with the guys who were were on on a Saturday morning because. Uh, it was very hard to get anything onto the breakfast show on a Saturday morning because it was so, uh, clogged up with, there was football and cricket and tennis and, you know, a bit of racing copy might get on if you were lucky. But, but I always concluded and I was always told that the best desks for audience of the week are desks at sort of, possibly 9.30, but 10.30, maybe even 11.30 on Saturday and Sunday mornings. So I always used to just make a point of leaving home to go to the races early, to be there for a live, as we called it, uh, on the the 10.30 desk, whereas other people probably wouldn't be there for a live. And of course, uh, on Five Live, a live report was always lapped up. And and having that first deadline of a Saturday morning is something I miss desperately. I miss desperately uh, having to, you know, the last race of the day is at five to five and to have 45 minutes to turn round for Sports Report, uh, a, a, a minute and a half report, a two minute report with a bit of an audio uh, dropped into the, the middle of that and being told by Simon Fote, the producer of Sports Report, uh, he always came up with the same line, and I think it's a great line for a producer. He used to go on and say, I'm here, and he used to say, air traffic control here. He said in reply, you are in a holding pattern, and we will get you on as soon as possible. Um, and um, uh, so so even if it was cold and dark, uh, or if you'd had to work like nobody's business to get stuff done in a very short space of time, I always loved that bit of humor from a producer, which meant that however irritated you were that you were having to wait 10 minutes, you you couldn't really get terribly upset. You know the
0: Douglas Adams
1: comment about deadlines. I'm sure. Go on.
0: Oh, Douglas Adams always used to say, "I love, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they fly past."
1: <laughs> well, I, I at the Cheltenham Festival. If you, if I was working at the Cheltenham Festival, the way I did it, uh, I, I did interviews with local radio stations in the morning because I thought they were really important. There was a deadline at half past eight. There was a deadline at half past ten. There was a deadline at half past twelve. The program started at one till four. Then there was a deadline at four at uh, just after five, at 5.30, just after six, at 6.30, uh, at five past seven, and then probably at about 20 past seven. And there is nothing. There is nothing more exhilarating. So, you you can you can you can miss doing the, the the actual reporting. You can miss the people, but you can you know you can contact them. But you you, you cannot recreate a deadline. Uh, and that that to, to me, and I hope that those people who 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 were kind enough to listen to me for really for quite a long time. Um, you know, I hope they enjoyed it as well, because there's nothing also better than a deadline that gets updated each time. So you're trying to make certain that those who turn on the radio, note, I've not used the expression, except in an illustration earlier on, the listener, those who have turned on the radio uh, are getting a, a new tidbit uh, every single time. And, you know, those people who did say when I left the BBC, Do you know, I'm sad to see you go. I've never met you. I got the odd message, a few messages saying, I've never met you, but I feel I know you and i'll tell you what that made me feel absolutely you know it felt so so good that that actually that i had and i think i did it and i certainly tried to but i think over quite a long period of time i tried to strike up a really good relationship a really good friendship with those people who turned on the radio i think that proves
0: you did your job Absolutely. Uh, sadly, our deadline has, has has been arrived at. What do we uh, now look forward to? C- Cornelius Cast, as I said, is there. I know you've written a book, World Race Courses, which is uh, a <laughs> 100 of your favourite race courses. What else is in the offing? Where can we find you next?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm about um, being a bit more corporate than I used to be um, and uh, not being able to report for sports report or a, a, a news bulletin or whatever uh, in quite the same way, but um, actually doing my bit, working with uh, various organizations to try and enhance um, the, the, the the good stories that are around, um, the, the good people that are around. Uh, ra- racing as, as I said earlier on, doesn't have quite the status in society that uh, it once did or in the sporting world that it once did, but there are still lots of good stories, well worth telling. And um, I will absolutely dedicate myself to making certain that those good stories um, about good people and good horses uh, continue to be told. And
0: your listener will, I'm sure, lap them up. Cornelius, thank you very much indeed. And there are more secrets from the Soundproof Studio to come in the next edition of You're On The Air, which will be available very soon. If you've enjoyed this one, please click on subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. I'm John Briggs. Till the next time, signing off the air. That's all we have for the moment,
1: but we will be keeping in touch.